Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am very, very excited today. Incredibly, incredibly happy because I was looking over all the episodes that we've done on the show and one of the things that stands out to me are the people who have directed and changed the face of film the way I see it and the way the world has seen it. And I thought I'd put together a great compilation of five of some of the most respected, amazing talents that have ever graced a director's chair. And I'm talking about Judd Apatow, David Zucker, Paul Feig, Reggie Hudlin, and the late Gary Marshall. And as I listened to all these episodes again, it really brought me back to how much they inspired me and how much they were authentic and original and took risks and failed and succeeded and failed again and again and then came back and always true to their vision. I can honestly say when I think of all of these directors, they all have their own unique styles, their own distinct visions. They created films and stories that had never been seen before. And no matter what the industry told them, even if they said to them, hey, listen, you can't do that, or we're not interested in that, or this is a failure, or this didn't work, no matter the number of times they got knocked down, they kept getting up, kept fighting, kept working, because they believed in the kind of stories that they were telling. And 
because they kept fighting and because they kept moving forward and because they kept creating and because they kept searching for these great, great stories, they ended up changing the face of entertainment and comedy, especially in feature films that have been seen millions and millions of times all over the world. And their films have made billions of dollars. When you think about these directors, let's face it, half of the most popular comedy actors, comedians, writers, directors, creators have come from collaborations with these amazing talents, including people like Matt Stone, Trey Parker, Julia Roberts, Bradley Cooper, Seth Rogen, Jonah Hill, James Franco, Amy Schumer, Kristen Wiig, Melissa McCarthy, Jamie Foxx. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on. Can you say Will Ferrell? Can you say Eddie Murphy? It's unbelievable. And these people work with the best because they are the best. I'm telling you, show me who you're with and I'll show you who you are. You follow that philosophy, you'll have a great chance with hard work and getting knocked down and getting up again of having the kind of career that these five directors have had. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and Seaman. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Welcome back to Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Very exciting show. Best of the film directors. And before I start, I just want to thank you guys so much. Amazing. You've been so supportive. Can't do it without you. Thank you so much. I'll never stop saying it because it's so true. I'm really grateful. Thank you. So without further ado, this is a great episode. You're going to enjoy it. I took the best of these interviews, some of which were two hours long, two hours and 45 minutes long, and got you the heart of what I think you'll really enjoy. So I can't think of a better way to start off than the man who did my 100th episode. What an honor. I got to his office at 8 o'clock in the morning and thought I was going to only be there an hour, and I rolled out of there at around 11 o'clock, and it was incredible. I learned so much about the business, learned so much about how it works, learned so much about what it takes to really face adversity and come out on the other side. This guy wrote jokes for Roseanne Barr, the Ben Stiller show, and soon won multiple Emmys with the Larry Sanders show before executive producing Freaks and Geeks and creating Undeclared for Fox. Turning to film, he produced Anchorman starring Will Ferrell and co-wrote, co-produced, 
and directed the smash hit The 40-Year-Old Virgin with Steve Carell. His string of comedy hits are unprecedented. Knocked Up, Forgetting Sarah Marshall, Talladega Nights, Funny People, This Is 40, Bridesmaids, and his book Sick in the Head, you gotta check it out. It's amazing. Welcome, Judd Apatow. I just think of your movies and the movies you're involved in, and I think of something that I talk about all the time, which is holy shit moments. Mm-hmm. And Mel Brooks, who you interviewed for your yes. book, I had the pleasure of meeting him and being with him for periods of time only once with Robin Hood Men and I used to call it Robin Hood Men and Bad Movie. Yes. But Robin Hood Men and Tights, it wasn't a bad movie, it was fun. With Dave Chappelle, one of the first movies he did when I was working with him. And Mel Brooks shared this thing. He said, I asked him what makes a successful movie for you. And he said, if I can have seven water cooler moments, which back then, which back then water cooler (laughs) moments in 90 minutes, if he had seven, he knew that he had a hit movie. Sure. And I like to call them holy shit moments, but uh, you just said sevens a lot. And, you know, I wish I had a lie detector test wrapped around your arm because my God, there's some movies of yours that have seven in the first 10 minutes. In Talladega Nights, the vision of this moment when Will Ferrell is in the wheelchair and stabs himself in the leg, if mm-hmm. there is anybody in the world that doesn't laugh at that, then they don't have a pulse. Yes. <laughs> and it was like literally 10 seconds. Yeah. And it's one of the biggest laughs you will ever see. I mean, I think one of the great privileges I've had has been to produce a few of the Will Ferrell, Adam McKay collaborations. I, you know, I'm very nervous as a director and I'm probably pretending to be in a good mood (laughs) and failing most of the time. Uh, But those guys, you know, they write those movies and Adam directs. They're having the best time. They're laughing their asses off. They really are taking an enormous pleasure from the experience. There's very little stress compared to other movies. And every time I get the chance to work with them, it just changes my mood for my own work. Like, oh, you're supposed to enjoy this. Oh, there's you know, this is about also this experience. And uh, it, it, it really changes me being around them. And, and they're just I don't think anyone's ever been as funny as those two guys. I mean, it really is remarkable to watch. And one of the great treats for me as a comedy nerd, because I'm really just a comedy nerd who wants to get around it all. I mean, I feel like I'm a comedian and an artist only so I'm able to sit on the set and watch Will and Adam work on a scene. So, you know, sometimes you're on the set and and none of it gets in the movie, but you got to watch basically the modern version of the Marx Brothers work out bits. And they might do 10 takes and Maybe the scene gets cut and you got to watch Will and Adam explore something ridiculous. There's a, there was a scene in uh, Anchorman 2 where Paul Rudd punches Will Ferrell. And they were just working out what is the what is Ron Burgundy's reaction to getting punched really hard. And Adam says, why don't you do one where after you get punched, you just talk about how it doesn't hurt because you're a man. And just list the reasons why you know you're a man and then slowly start to cry. And then Will goes for like three minutes. It was one of my favorite things I've ever witnessed 
you know, <laughs> was Will running that idea. And then they did another version, which was when he hits you. Um, you know, the, 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 I mean, there was one version where it was like he hits you back into fifth grade, you know, and, and he just starts, you know, going my pee pee and just like. <laughs> And they, but they would run like five major concepts. Like after he hits you, it's like you don't speak English. <laughs> he hits you so hard, and you know that's the you know the gift of being in the business is oh I got to see that no one got to see that it was it was my dream of being on the set watching Bill Murray and Harold Ramis goofing around on the set of Stripes. Now, what years were you representing Dave Chappelle? I represent Dave Chappelle from about 92 to 2000. To 2000. Robin Hood Men and Tights, uh-huh. Blue Streak, You've Got Mail, and Con Air were the four movies yeah. that he made. And we did seven pilots in eight years. Wow. Isn't that, that funny? There's so many people like that. Because I, I did multiple pilots with Amy Poehler, and I always thought... This is, this is the funniest woman I've ever seen. I have to figure out a way to make something work with her. And then I, I put her on undeclared as a recurring as the, the RA on the floor. And uh, and then she went on Saturday Night Live and to do all these great things. But really early on, I just thought, I, I don't know if anyone's ever been funnier than this woman. When she used to play a, a, a Andy's sister on Conan, I just remember looking at, at that just going... What's better than this on earth than this woman doing this? You noticed there's a ton of people. You look on Conan. Mm-hmm. You look, you got IMDb. You look at all the actors who have done guest spots on Conan. There's probably 500 to 1,000 mm-hmm. of them. But you noticed her because her work stood out. Well, in a way, it must be like management. It, it's just, I, I'm not seeking anything out. I'm a fan, so I just watch, and then every once in a while you see somebody and you think, oh, I'm going to track this. So as a kid, I loved Michael Keaton, and he would be on the Mike Douglas show. Again, a guy who started as a stand-up early on and then... Hilarious stand-up. Yes. And then I heard, oh, he's got a TV show, Working Stiffs, with Jim Belushi. (laughs) And I thought, I got to watch this show. This is like my favorite comedian from the Mike Douglas show. And then that didn't go anywhere. Oh, he's in this movie, Night Shift. And so I would do that as a kid. They were like comedians, and I just want, wanted to know what they were up to. Andy Kaufman was another one. I, I knew who he was before Taxi and was so excited that Taxi was coming. And I, that's there's no difference between that and hearing Amy Schumer on the Howard Stern show and thinking, she's hilarious. What is she doing? What does she want to do? That She's so ready to tell a story. But again... You heard a lot of comedians on the Howard Stern show. You started listening to Howard 30 years ago. But Amy's comedy moved you. Mm-hmm. Her content moved you. Her personality moved you. And that's the thing. If you're out there doing anything, I don't care what profession you're in, if you can figure out a way to stand out and figure out to get what you do to that level, people will always notice. I want to see Chappelle a bunch this summer. We were doing train wreck, and Amy would go out during the writing process, and she was always doing stand-up. And she would do her show, and while they were editing her show, she would go out. And it was just so impressive, her her work ethic. And then at some point, I just started getting jealous because I thought, that just sounds like so much fun that you get to do that. And I started joking around when we would be working on the pages, and I'd go, I'm going to go up. 
let me do some stand-up. I go, send me some premises, Amy. Send me some premises, and I'll write jokes on them. And so her and her sister, Kim, who's also Wait, a great she, writer. you asked her to send you premises yes. for yourself. For myself. I go, send me some premises, and I'll try to write jokes for them. And so just for like a couple of weeks, Amy and Kim would email me and say, what if you had boys instead of girls for your kids? And things like that. And I started writing jokes. Do you remember the day... You quit the last stand-up performance you had. It was the one you went to. It was the 1992 HBO Young Comedian Special. The Ben Stiller Show had just been picked up to series, and I was so busy working on the show, I thought, I can't do stand-up and run this show with Ben. And so even though that was the moment, and I wasn't a guy who was obsessed with Carson. I was obsessed with the HBO Young Comedian Special. Well, the HBO Young Comedian Special, and I will share this with you, and again, you'll probably run over here and take me out. I felt bad for you Mm -hmm. after the Young Comedian Special, and you're going to think I'm saying about your stand-up, and that's not why I felt bad for you. The HBO Young Comedian Special had this thing where Rodney Dangerfield hosted it every other year, and so he'd host it from his club every other year. I don't know why, and then... The next version would just be one where there would be a guest host. And I always felt that those comedians didn't get the same attention or play that they did when Rodney presented them. And I felt it was unfair. And uh, and obviously it didn't hurt you that much, but I can't believe like you came to the pinnacle of your goal of the HBO Young Comedian Special, which, by the way, everybody, back then maybe seven comedians at the most and when you started doing it i think they pared them down and later on it was only like five you get to your goal you accomplish your goal and then you drop the mic and you don't go out anywhere every comedy club probably wanted you after that every probably to do theaters and things like that and you never went up again well i you know there was a few times where i would do Shows like Uncabaret and some of the alternative comedy. With when Beth Lapidus. Yeah, you know, when we did Funny People, I went up and uh, we tried to write jokes for Adam by doing some stand-up, but never really did it seriously again. But it was because I was so... Well, I was a little burnt out on the on the form and watching comedians so heavily for, for so long. But I also thought that people were so much better than me. I... I I was a fan and I knew where I stood and I would watch people like Ray Romano was on that special. And I would, I watched Ray and I thought, I can't believe how funny this guy has gotten. He is, he's exploding. And this is before the TV show, but everyone at that special was like, when the fuck did Ray Romano get this funny? And he tore it down. And as a guy from long Island and the East coast, like Ray, I thought, I'm nowhere in the world close to what Ray is But doing. you are in the world because you were selected one of the handful of people on that special. Tell everybody who was on that special. It was uh, Andy Kindler, Janine Garofalo, Bill Bellamy, and Nick DiPaolo. And That's right. Ray Romano and Dana Carvey hosted it. Uh, and, and we did it in Tempe, Arizona. The uh, but, but I always had that feeling that I didn't have much to say. I was a kid. I had, I didn't have any like significant relationships. I didn't have many opinions on the world. So I could write some jokes and I knew that if Roseanne hired me to write her stand up with her, which was a job I had when I was young, I could think like her, I could go, Oh, this is her life experience. Sit with her, shape some of her ideas into jokes with her. 
And I did that for other people. For those of you who don't know, and I think Roseanne would say this if you were sitting here, writing for Roseanne was one of the most challenging things in the world because most writers, including people like Norm MacDonald, yeah. you know, had their scripts thrown out. Yeah. They were fired. I mean, there were countless people who were fired. I was fired. a stand-up guy. So while all this crazy was happening never the fired. show, I was never fired. I would go to her house on the weekend, and me and her would sit at her breakfast table while her, while her family ran around, and we would write what became this special Roseanne Arnold's uh, HBO, uh, I forgot what the name of it was, but it was just Roseanne Arnold, I think. It was the one that was shot in Minneapolis with, where she wore a gold lame like, biker suit. And it was the first special which was about what is it like for Roseanne now that she's famous, where she reflects on the change in her life to superstar. And it's really a, a, a great special. But you know, when you're sitting with Roseanne writing jokes or if you're writing jokes with Jim Carrey or, you know, I wrote a, a special uh, that Dennis Miller hosted this pregame show to Paul Simon live in Central Park. And Dennis did a half hour special, which wasn't stand up. It was a little, uh, you know, little remote pieces about Simon and about Paul Simon. You know how you're not as good as them. But I, I didn't have that arrogance of what, but soon I'll be better. I just thought, I don't know. The world keeps trying to make me right. And, keeps pulling me into this other field. But then when we were working on Trainwreck, I thought, you know, I, I think it's more fun being on stage than being on these sets or being in the editing room. And I want to continue to make movies, but I miss being a comic. I want to be identified as a comic first. And someone said to me, well, you're a director now. As if it was a higher place. And I said, no, being thought of as a comic to me is the highest place and uh, I started going into the comedy cellar so the first time I did those jokes that we talked about and I had a decent set and, and Amy was funny because she's like she was like feigned anger that I did okay <laughs> the first set but I mainly did bits I had done on talk shows when I was promoting movies and stuff and then I went up every night the entire time I was in New York shooting the movie and you know the greatest part of it was just after a few months feeling like the comedians treated me like I was a comic that, oh, you deserve to be on this stage. Judd's taking this seriously. And, you know, there were nights I would have to go on after Louie or I'd have to go on after Dice or, um, you know, any of the amazing people that are at the comedy cellar every night. But it's about having the confidence in who you are. And, you know, Louis Anderson once said to me about his HBO Young Comedian special. He said that Rodney asked him to do it after he had already made it. And he said, look, I'm not, you know, I don't think I should do yeah. this. He says, I want you to close the show. And Louis didn't think anything of it. And he thought, okay, well, this is a great honor. And then, you know, he's in the room hanging out and Sam goes on. Oh, yeah, he found Kinnison. Sam Kinnison goes on, like fourth. Yeah. And he's like, it's over. Yeah. <laughs> it's over. The, the show is over. How am I going to compete? How am I going to do? What am I going to do? I'm not, I'm not as funny. I'm not yeah. Sam. I can't. He just destroyed this audience. And he said he walked around uh, the danger fields on the street a couple of times. And he said, look, you know, just be who you are. Be who you are. They'll come to you. Mm-hmm. They'll rally around you. And they'll, they'll love you just as much as they love Sam. And they did. Oh, yeah. And, and, so, and it's the same with you. It, it launched both of them. That's right. And it's, it doesn't matter yeah. if you can hoop. But it's scary. Louis, yeah. It's scary. But Louis <laughs> stood there, planted his feet again. Yeah. 
but delivered the great content and Sam was screaming and doing whatever. And you love those moments. Like I thought, I thought this is like why I wanted to do this. Ray Romano comes in, kills, then Dice comes in. Uh, and then I have to go on after both of them. And Dice played the comedy seller that night like it was Madison Square Garden. It's filthy and really funny. This is something that you have to deal with. You have to deal with the fact that people are going to go on stage before you who you haven't hired yet. I hadn't thought of that at the time, but I say I do. And that's why he went hard. And if Dice were right here, he would say the same thing. And when he got off stage, in his mind, he was taking a puff out of that cigarette (laughs) and saying, take that motherfucker. (laughs) Well, the funny thing is, I didn't think that at all because I was in such a head of trying to be a comedian and follow him. There was no part of me that thought he wants to look good for me. And he did tear the house down and then when i went on stage dice stood at the doorway where i could see him and watched the entire set just stared at me the entire time and i just talked to him and then i i kind of reviewed his set and some of his theories like i said you know I don't know if I really could get away with asking the wife to bedazzle the pussy. <laughs> that was one of his bits about bedazzling the pussy. Because of the comedy seller, <laughs> it's the comedy seller is so intimate a room and so tight a room that literally when you're on stage, you can see out to the hallway where the comedian is in yeah. the doorway. And I swear to you, everybody, if it's 20 feet or 25 feet, it's a miracle. Yeah, it's, it's less than that. But uh, but that was the you know the fun of it. And now that I'm older, I'm 47 years old, I have a lifetime of stories and opinions. And so stand-up is a very different thing for me than when I was a terrified kid. Now, you say that comedians are generally nice, and I'm going to a place where you might not want to go. You've been there firsthand where you see comedians who self-destruct or they do the same behaviors over and over again. For me, when I first started going into the comedy cellar, they were really nice. And they're they're kind of built for like one person a show to drop by unannounced. And they like it. They want that at the comedy cellar. They want the audience to get people who are not on the schedule. But believe me, if they said do 12 minutes, I got off at 10 and a half. I, I was never the guy to take advantage of that. And I would always say to the comics, am I screwing anybody up? And if I was... I wouldn't go on. Uh, I'm very aware of that. And then as soon as I figured out the system, I would get set times. Because th- I, I'll tell you a funny story. Once, uh, years ago, I was with Jim Carrey during the first season of In Living Color. And uh, he got bumped by Dice. And then he got bumped <laughs> by Kennison. So he, he got bumped for almost two hours. So, you know, he had a 9.30 slot. And now it's like, you know, 11.30. And... Uh, he was so upset that he went on stage and just said, I'm not getting off till the club is closed. And he stayed on stage <laughs> for two hours. And it was one of the great sets I've ever seen. And this was, it was before all the movies. It was, and, and comedians were yelling at him from the side of the stage. I think he created Fire Marshal Bill that night. He was on stage so long. Uh, and so that's, you know, that's one of the great things about comedy clubs. When I was a kid, I was a dishwasher at Eastside Comedy Club on Long Island. And Eddie Murphy used to come in. And he would just show up. And they would immediately start a pool to bet how long he would do because it would it would bump all the other comedians. And in a way, it's something that 
bugs comedians, but also is one of the great things for the audience. You love going to a show, and what? Robin Williams showed up, and he did an hour and a half. Like, if the other comedians aren't happy, but you're in heaven, you know, that somebody shows up, uh, you know, uh, like Dane. and It's true. You sense. are in heaven when you're an audience member and you see somebody like yeah. Dane do that long. You mentioned Eddie, and I remember something in your book that stuck with me that was such an incredible. I think you were a dishwasher, and you were poking your head in when Eddie Murphy was on stage, and you... I think somebody heckled him, and he yeah. and he said something like, "Because I don't care. I'm 21. I'm black, and I got a bigger dick than you." <laughs> I remember being a kid. Go, go. That's the coolest guy in the world. <laughs> I don't remember anything else he said. I just remember that moment, and I thought, "Wow, I'd like to be that confident." No, I want to talk to you about something else that I think people don't talk to you about. But I remember talking to Jay Moore about this as well. It was an issue that he went through on Saturday Live. You had a situation. You don't hear about it a lot, but there's comedians that deal with other comedians and routines that they do and people yeah. thinking that they stole oh, material. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. I think Fred Wolf was somebody who it oh, was this a, is a, funny a story. great, yes. great comedian. <laughs> yes. I'll tell you this story. So I just started doing stand-up. I, I'm not in at the improv. I mean, I'm maybe, I don't know, 19 years old or 20 years old. I go to do this gig. Bob Zaney would book these gigs. And for a few years, they would just put a mic anywhere. And that seems to have ended. But for a while, it could be anywhere. A disco, there could be a mechanical bull there. There could be anything. And so this was like in a pizza place in West Covina. And it's just pandemonium. The crowd's just screaming at all the comedians. And it's, it's war. There's no control. Everyone is hammered. And I'm I'm scared shitless. I get on stage. I'm bombing. I I don't know what to do. So I think I said two Fred Wolf jokes to not get killed. <laughs> right? I, I forgot which ones they were, uh, but I just said I just didn't know what to do. I didn't have any jokes. I had no weapons. <laughs> and but I'm in the middle of nowhere, and it was just to not die. <laughs> and I don't mean have a bad set i mean like not have a physical confrontation with the crowd <laughs> so then i go i'm working at the improv there was an improv in the in the bottom of the hotel the hilton in the valley you know they're just throwing mics everywhere so this is again like, like a conference room and it was a great room that joe drew ran and before i was into the improv he would let me go on if someone didn't show up so i would stay there all night every night wait for someone to not show up and a lot of times people were late and he really supported me early on. So Fred Wolf walks up to him at night and says, hey, man, I heard you did, did the joke of mine. And I said, no, I didn't. And we were friends. And we're like, no, I totally denied it, which is like my move as a little kid with my parents. And see how comedians know everything. Yeah. I go, no, Fred, I swear to God, I would never, I would tell you. I would totally tell you. I lied for a decade. I just, I couldn't, there was a part of me that I was so ashamed it was the only time it ever happened. I said, I, I didn't. I, dude, I would tell you. And he said to me, like, Judd, I don't care. This you can admit it. I'm like, dude, I didn't. I don't know what you're talking about. And then I don't know how many years later. It could have been five years. could have been ten years. Out of the blue, he's like, you stole that joke that night. I'm like, oh, of course I did. Uh, I, I, but I, I couldn't, you know, tell him. And it, I was so immature. I was just a child. I couldn't look him in the eye and go, dude, I got so scared that I didn't know what to do. And I apologize. I, you know, and he wouldn't have cared at all. He's one of the great people of all time. Uh, it couldn't be funnier. 
and uh, so I understand what that is. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. My next guest is an amazing writer, director, producer. He is so incredible in the stories he tells, including how he came up with a 10-minute short that became House Party and changed the way movies were made back then. He went on to do movies like Boomerang and incredible, powerful, thought-provoking movies like the one he did with Quentin Tarantino, Django Unchained. This guy was my third guest ever. And every time I listen to what he has to say, it changes the way I think about the business. Reggie Hudlin. How do you get to the situation where you make your move? You you do something that, mm-hmm. that gets you to the point where people notice you. Now, obviously, in East St. Louis, they notice you because you went to Harvard and your brother went to Yale and they say, oh, they got out. So you, in that time, which was very rare, you decide to write and put together a film of an original concept. It's just before that. It starts in East St. Louis. It's just before you get into Harvard, right? Because when I'm hanging out with my friends, right, and my, you know... Your childhood friends are your childhood friends. You do dumb things together, right? Like, it's, let's all go ride our bikes, right? Because, you know, it was the summer. You leave the house when there's light, and you come back when it's dark. <laughs> and there's no – do not come in the house again. There's a, If you're thirsty, there's a water hose. Drink. If you have to pee, you go in the alley and pee. Like, just get out of the house. Stay out of the house. So we would get on our bikes. So right now, my bike – something was wrong with the brakes, now, you would think just fix the brakes, but somehow we just didn't get around to fixing the brakes that summer. So we're riding around. So you end up at the top of an incredibly steep <laughs> hill, right? So my friends, being my friends, just left me at the top of the hill. I reached down at the bottom of the hill. It's like, wow, okay, I guess I'll go now. <laughs> so you ride down this hill, and you're, just, you're like, I'm – I'm going to go into traffic. I'm going to die. I have no brakes. I can't control this. So I barely make the turn, and I drive over about a dozen people's yards, and then I finally stop. But the brake doesn't, you know, bike doesn't fall over, and it's like, oh my god, that was insane. And I go, that's a really good scene for a movie, and that's and that's the difference, right? I was self-aware enough then 
that that horrible, embarrassing near-death experience was good material. So I was filing it away. Wow. And, and you know, and I was fortunate that I had great parents. I mean, to the point where I would go somewhere and adults would go, you win them Hutland boys? <laughs> yes, sir. Oh, pharmacy or insurance? Because it would be like, my uncle had a pharmacy and my father sold insurance. Insurance. Your father's a good man. Your father's good man meant don't do anything fucked up. Do not embarrass your family name because it's a good name. So that's expectation, right? Yeah. So, I, so, so I brought that. So that's what gets you to Harvard, right? You're, you know, you're, you, you've got a passion with, with no chance of it ever paying off anywhere, right? But there's a passion that starts from childhood with no sense of direction, right? And then you find some possible way to get there. So you get to Harvard and you go, okay, now I'm in Harvard. I think I may be the one accident, but somehow I'm in here. And then you get there and Harvard's great because Harvard does have this great reputation. There's so many smart people and you realize there's different kinds of smart, right? And there's smart like you grind it out, you work hard, you study hard, and there's like effortlessly brilliant. And you go, whoa, even in the category of smart, there's people who are ridiculous, right? And then, so you go, well, you know, there's smart and there's really smart, and there's people who are kind of fraudulently smart, right? Who can study real hard and pass a test, but if you actually sit around and talk about politics, they don't know anything about politics, even though they got an A in their politics class. And well, you are fraud smart. So you understand all these different kinds of smart. So in the, when you go out in the world, you go, well, this is the same three categories of smart that you'll see anywhere. And, you know, like a guy like Chris Rock, he is the, the, the highest category of smart. No question about it. He's got a GED. It doesn't matter. He's smarter than most people who went to Harvard, right? So that's this. So you, that's a thing you learn that has nothing to do with the classroom, just socially interacting with people, right? Um, but I guess the but for me, when you say okay, I, I knew from my older brother who was already kind of working in film, uh, in most sort of the independent scene before the word independent was even a term, right? He was like, look, by the time you graduate, you've got to shoot ten minutes. That's as good as ten minutes of any movie ever made perfect thing that you just said but you're doing that at a time when there's no youtube no there's nothing there's camera there's cameras that you're using that are literally weigh about 700 pounds and they it's, have to be on your shoulder it's and un yes and i lived on the opposite side of campus as where the equipment was you're dealing with three quarter inch tapes back then or whatever well, they you, are. you would check out the camera and it was this huge metal crate with no wheels or anything sane put on it right so I would carry this huge – it was like, you know, those machine guns. You'd but see. at Harvard, they would give you the opportunity to sign it out and do it. But before we get yeah. to that, this incredible short <laughs> that launched your career, something you created, you wrote, your vision. Yes. Your brother said, make sure you create something yes. that for those 10 minutes is as good as anything. And I say this to stand-ups. I say this mm. to anybody doing video. You have to create holy shit moments. And if That's you don't right. – you might as well just pack it up and go home because it's not, it's got to be better than everybody else. It's got to be so far beyond because even if it's close, you got to get the nod. So you do this short, but what's your inspiration? What are the 10 minutes of certain films that you've seen right. before that, that you're like, okay, 
I have to make something that can compare these 10 minutes have to compare to that and then talk about the, the project mm. and the name of the project. Sure. because I'm not going to spoil it because it's a wonderful story. Well, I mean, I'm watching everything as a kid. Right. And I mean, I'm you know, you're watching, you know, you go to the drive in theater, to see Fantastic Voyage. You know, we would go to the movies about 10 in the morning and you'd watch Bruce Lee's Into the Dragon all day. Because what you have nothing better to do than to watch Bruce Lee. There's no better use of your time than watching Bruce Lee all day long. So, you know, so I'm, I'm, you know, it's so weird. I am a white Jewish male Mm -hmm. who has no concept of the cultural thing that happens maybe in East St. Louis. And if you were to tell me that you and your friends were going to see Bruce Lee movies, I wouldn't even think that that would be the case. Bruce Lee is part of the Holy Trinity. It's Bruce Lee, Malcolm X, and Bootsy Collins. <laughs> That's what it's all about. That is manhood. Okay? That's the goal. If you can touch the hem of the garment of those three men... <laughs> then you're worth something. You're worth the air you're taking up, okay? Fantastic. <laughs> so, no, I mean, because Bruce Lee was a third-world hero. I mean, he was, he was, there's no difference between Bruce Lee and Muhammad Ali, okay? I mean, and for people of color, I mean, when in, in Return of the Dragon, when Bruce Lee fights Chuck Norris, that's as genius of a movie scene as you're going to see anytime, anywhere, right? First of all, they're fighting in the Roman Colosseum. Right. <laughs> so it says epic fight for the ages, <laughs> uh, you know, and Bruce Lee, who's this, you know, slender Asian guy. Right. And, you know, the big white hairy guy gets off the plane <laughs> with like <laughs> that crazy, like polyester shirt. I'm going to beat you. Right. So they fight. And the first thing Bruce Lee done is rip the hair off of his chest. <laughs> and like, oh, shit. <laughs> That's a physiological racial statement right there. <laughs> and then Bruce Lee, as he's fighting, he starts dancing around. Now, not only is that clearly a Muhammad Ali quote, but if you're really down with Bruce, you know that Bruce Lee was the cha-cha champion of Hong Kong, right? So I, I did not know that. You don't know that? Uh, anyway, so... so Bruce Lee's whole fighting style is influenced by, you know, kind of Afro-Latin culture, right? Because all that is the same thing. So it's all in there. So he's speaking to us. It's in cold, but it's loud and clear to us. Bruce Lee is our man, and we're down with him. God, I'm, I'm stunned, but keep now going. I you know. <laughs> so, so watching all this stuff, um, and I'm also watching this on PBS – uh, they have the Janus film collection, right? And Janus has all the classics of, I mean, Jewels and Gems, Kurosawa, Truffaut, you know, all the you know the classics of international cinema. And they were showing those every week. And they had this series called The Japanese Film with Edward O. Reinschauer. And it was this very, you know, very serious guy. And he would introduce these films. So I was watching those movies in high school. And they, and... Later, when I went to Harvard my freshman year, I got the Harvard Crimson School newspaper, and it said, Edward O. Reinschauer retires. I was like, retires? I didn't even know he taught here, but I missed him. But this guy, like, shaped my whole childhood because of those movies I would watch on PBS. So anyway, so I'm watching all these movies. 
So there's three movies that really go, okay. I mean, there's there's four. I'm gonna I'm gonna say four. The first movie that says I'm going to make movies is when I see Tommy by Ken Russell, right? Tommy's underrated because Tommy is really the first real music video movie. I mean, certainly you got Beatles with Hard Day's Night, but Tommy is a rock opera. Like, and all when you look at Tommy now, all the visuals, all this hyper stylization that Ken Russell does is what MTV is going to become. And it was rock music. It was Elton John, who we loved. And it was like, you know, musicals don't have to be like guys with a straw hat going, come on, my baby. Like, you can actually do music that you care about. So I said, I'm going to make a movie like Tommy with George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic. So that was my mission, right? I decided that in high school. So I'll go, okay, but that's going to be hard, right? So then I see a bunch of movies that are super relatable to me. I see Risky Business. I see Animal House. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I see American Graffiti. And I go, well, these are just movies about us and our lives. These are about just kids going through kid stuff. So I'm like, well, I want to make a movie like that about my lives and the lives of my friends. So my brother had given me a diary because he was tired of me pitching ideas for movies. He says, just stop telling me. Just write them down. So I'm just, you know, so I was writing down all these ideas. So the summer before my senior year in college, I'm going through the diary and I'm collecting all these stories. And I string them together, you know, for, for a script for my, for my senior thesis film. And uh, the last day of, 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 of summer before I go back to college – I'm packing up. I've got the radio on. And as a kind of a mental exercise, because this is at the dawn of music videos, I would make music videos in my head of the song that was playing. So Luther Vandross is on, Bad Boy Having a Party. I'm like, oh, this is a great song. You could make a great video out of this. I'm like, no, that's a great movie. And that night I wrote the house party script in a night. You wrote the house party screenplay for the 10 the ten for the 10-minute version that night. It's like, I've been working all summer on another script. And it was like, forget all that. This is it. And when it, and, and that's the thing. All the writing I did that summer was prep for the true idea. Which is important because a lot of times as artists who are listening and watching, you work on something for so long and so hard. You might work on a screenplay for years and years and years and years or a, a sitcom draft mm-hmm. that you're working on or a book. And what oftentimes happens, you're just working on it and you're not sure and your instincts are just in there. I've been working so hard. I can't, I can't stop. I can't give up. I'm too far. I'm too deep. It's like being in love with somebody and you just know it's not right, but you just let me give it another day. And then when that idea comes, one of the hardest things to do sometimes as an artist is to walk away from the other thing, all that work you've done. But when it really, really hits you like a stone it becomes easy to walk away from it. Well, the other work, I mean, again, like really the other work was just prep, right? I mean, writing's a muscle. So you need to like lift weights every day, right? So you're writing and writing and writing, but then, and all that writing and all that conceptualizing has built your muscle up. So then you have an idea that is a, like a diamond bullet idea that is crystal clear and it just comes out and all that work, all that heavy lifting you were doing pays off and like boom this is it and it just comes out and it's complete there's a beginning a middle and end there's complete clarity 
and you know it's right because it came out so beautiful. The same way like you date a girl and you date her for a long time and you fight and you get back together, da, 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 and then you meet, and then you break up and you go, ah, and then you meet some girl and then you go, this is it, I'm going to marry you, and then you marry her. So sometimes a project... And then you send the past girl a fruit basket saying yes. thank you for... you go, thank you. You taught me a lot, thank you. Again, the, the failure-inspiring success. Yeah, well... You know, how many times are things supposed to work? You know, the question is... Like, well, according to this bio, a lot of fucking times. <laughs> let me tell you something. It's unbelievable. Well, you know. A lot of things have worked. Well, you know, I'm having fun. So you do the house party, a 10-minute thing, and you, so I imagine you finish it off, and then there's this thing where you screen it for your class yes. first. And so how many people are in your class? Well, it's like 10. 10 people, and you screen it, and do you, do you know when you screen it that you got something special there. Yeah, it works. Uh, and the, the, my professor was rightly like, you know, there's fat in there. You can tighten it up, which is true. And in life, it's the never-ending battle to get rid of fat. Of right? killing the babies. <laughs> <laughs> but the fact is it works. And, the, and what's interesting is then I hear about this grant, right? Because there would be these grants for little independent filmmakers from the government. So I was like, well, there's a grant for another... You know, but you can't apply. You can't get a grant for work you're getting credit for. So I say, well, I'm going to come up with another idea, and I'm going to apply for a grant. So I, I, I write my form and I send in the grant and I send in the clip, my movie, this show, and I get the grant. And I, and the thing is, I, I, I stay. I don't go home for Thanksgiving. I said, look, I got to do it now. So I'm going to stay here. How much is the grant for? Like 5000 bucks. 5000 All the money in the world. Because <laughs> when you don't have 5000 bucks, it's a fortune. It is. <laughs> so, so I apply and I got the grant. And then I found out my professor had applied for the same grant. And I beat him. <laughs> but he was great about it. He was like, you're a professional filmmaker. You just got money to make a movie. Let's uh, insert the truth serum in your veins for a second and tell me your biggest professional disappointment. Wow. Well, you know, what I found sort of as a rule is that when I do stuff I'm genuinely passionate about, it tends to work on one level or another. Even things that may not be hits, people go, oh, man, I love that thing. And I'll get another opportunity as a result of it. But when I do stuff that is the smart thing to do, it fails. And so basically what I've learned is I can't sell out. Not that I'm above it. I just can't make it work for me. So I've tried to sell out and failed so I can only do stuff I'm passionate about. And, you know, so I just try to keep that as a rule. What was the failure that made you realize that definitively? Or or even a tip. Like when I, I did this movie called Great White Hype, which a lot of people really like, and I really like. And I made a lot of fantastic professional relationships out of it. But unlike House Party or Boomerang or uh, or even Bebe's Kids, it just it, it you know it didn't click with audiences the same way. And I was like, wow, I liked it because it was it was a smart idea and we had a really interesting ensemble of actors and all that. But it didn't work. And I just thought, well, because it something about it wasn't organic to me. And I just thought, you know, well, that's the lesson. You you got to do stuff that's organic to you. And like I say, I don't simply measure 
financial success. Like I did this, I, I wrote comic books for Marvel for many years, just because I'm a big comic book head. And so I you got worked on Spider Man as well as the that Black Panther series. Exactly. Created, right? So the Black Panther series we turned into an animated series. I actually greenlit my own book when I was at. Um, which was Birth of a Nation. Yeah, well, yeah, well, I did Birth of a Nation, and then, uh, but while at BET, we decided to turn Black Panther into an animated series, and then I left the network and got on board as a producer. So one of those weird things. I did all three jobs on on that series, um, and like you know, by the time you know the network was putting it on, they were very reluctant because I was the outgoing exec. So it was like, oh, that's the previous regime. So they kind of put it on at midnight. They didn't really promote it, but it got huge ratings and was like became a trending topic on Twitter every time it aired. And the DVD became the biggest seller in the Marvel Knights animated line. So it had this extraordinary success, even though it was sort of a stepchild project. But there you go. You have your biggest disappointment and your proudest moment all wrapped into. Right. And I remember and that night. I was over at Quentin's and he, you know, gave me the Django script. You know, the RZA was there and the RZA was like telling Quentin, man, that Black Panther animated series, that was the best thing ever. And you just go, well, look, here's this guy who I respect as an artist, the RZA, raving about this animated series. So when someone whose work you respect respects that thing, then you know what? That thing was absolutely worth it. All your experiences in the business are drowning in the ocean. You can only save one as that highlight chapter that when everybody reads it, it's like, oh, my God, I can't believe that thing happened or that situation went down. Or, mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I've, I've had a lot of fun in the business. Uh, and I would, you know, it would be between House Party and Boomerang. You know, House Party was a movie I wrote myself and you know, directed my first movie, and it was a perfect drama-free production experience. It was fantastic. At the same time, doing Boomerang with the biggest star in the world, you know, and convincing the studio to hire people who I thought were enormously talented, like Chris Rock and Martin Lawrence and Halle Berry, um, David Lennon Greer, and they were all kind of like, really? You don't want to get the guys from a different world? I think, (laughs) (laughs) you know, um, and and telling them, I said, look, one day people won't believe that all these people were in the same movie. And, you know, that happened sooner than we thought. I look at the clips and I still don't believe them. I, you know, and every day was just fun, fun, fun. We had an extraordinary time. And, you know, but Jenga was the same thing. Um, Uh. We knew we were making history as we were making the movie. Uh, and then we're sitting in the Oscars, and at one point I saw Coven Zene, uh, who, you know, Wallace, who had, was there nominated for Beast of the Southern Wild, and there was Denzel. And I said, guys, let's take a picture together. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we took this picture on my, on, my, you know, on my phone, and it was just like, this is crazy. We're all here nominated for an Oscar. So my mom was there. And believe me, there's nothing better than your mom going to the Oscars. It's better than me going to the Oscars. (laughs) Hey, everybody. I'm really, really excited. We have a new sponsor, AquaTrue. 
This is the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. I know it sounds complicated, but let's put it this way. This is something that can take your tap water and can turn it into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You're going to be enjoying the best water, the safest water. And if you haven't read all the news about Flint, Michigan, in every single state, there's over 100 chemicals found in tap water that are not even regulated by the EPA. Many of them are cancer-causing and have lead in them. So you can go to a special website that we've set up called industrystandardwater.com. It takes you directly to the AquaTrue site. And if you get this product, you're going to get $100 off. Just type in 100 in the special code section. You'll get that money off and you'll start saving. You can put a whole huge bottle of Diet Coke in this machine. And 10 minutes later, it'll come out with the best tasting water you've ever had. I got one of these products. It was unbelievable. Industrystandardwater.com. And you'll be enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever tasted. My next guest is one of the most groundbreaking comedy directors in history. Airplane, Naked Gun, Kentucky Fried Movie, which changed the game completely. To innovative movies like Basketball with Trey Parker and Matt Stone. And then incredible juggernauts like Scary Movie. This guy has done it all, seen it all, and created it all. Airplane was nominated for not only a Golden Globe and BAFTA Award, but was also entered into the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress. What a pleasure. David Zucker. Now, at the time you wrote Airplane, and at the time you were writing these sketches for the Kentucky Fried Theater, was there anything that existed in film and television that utilized this style that you have basically has become your lane and is known for being your lane for your entire career? Like, you know how you can point back in horror, you see the Cyclops and you see these things. What Was there ever anything in black and white or even silent movies or something where they utilize this style, or is this a style that was never utilized before, you never saw before anywhere? It was the latter, never saw before anywhere. I mean, uh, people ask us all the time, you know, what were your influences? And, we, you know, we say, you know, Woody Allen and the Marx Brothers, but more than that, it was serious movies. You know, it was those straight black and white movies, which we thought were hilarious. It was around that time, after we had you know, thought of the idea, well, we should write a movie, that we met John Landis. And I had seen John Landis, he he appeared on The Tonight Show because he had done a uh, a movie called Schlock. And he did it with family money, and I was amazed that this, you know, I don't know, he's probably a 25 or 26-year-old who had done a movie. And so I called him up, and, and there was also an article in the L.A. Times about him uh, having been this young director who did a movie. So I 
I called him up and invited him to see the, the theater. And so he came to see the theater, and we arranged to have lunch at the Hamburger Hamlet in Culver City on Sepulveda. And I don't know if it's still there, but because uh, we wanted to pick his brain about how he did a movie. And so he said, first, you need a script. And, uh, and we said, well, we know, but, you know, what does one look like? And this is how green we were. And so he went out to his car and got a, a sample script, and it was called American Werewolf in London. <laughs> and, you know, wait years and years, of course, before it was ever made. But he said, here, I have this copy. Use this. And so that that's how we learned, you know, how to do the slug lines and how the dialogue is to be formatted and everything. So, so Sid Field hadn't <laughs> written this book screenplay by that point. No, no. No one had, had done anything. And, uh, in fact, Saturday Night Live was yet to be thought of. In fact, um, Lorne Michaels and brought Dick Ebersol to Kentucky Fried Theater because Lorne was trying to sell this idea of doing this Saturday Night Live show on national TV to Ebersol. And so he takes him to Kentucky Fried Theater and said, this is what I want to do on national TV. And then I guess Ebersol got it. And so that that became the start of, of Saturday Night Live. Now, we had wow. already met Chevy Chase and... Who's the guy who did the uh, the best in show that Christopher Guest? Chris Guest, who were friends of Ken Shapiro, because we met Ken Shapiro when he when we came out to L.A. Ken Shapiro showed up at our show uh, one night, and so and we you know we met him. We and what we, was and Ken doing at the time? He was working on his movie Groove to the movie of Groove Tube. Yeah. And uh, did I even mention that that was uh, Channel One was GrooveTube? That's what that's what Ken Shapiro, that's what it was called. So he was doing a movie of GrooveTube, and uh, and and we thought Chevy was really funny because he had he was in GrooveTube, and he wanted to be in our show, and we said, well. You know, we'd love to have you in it, but we we have to wait till you know somebody quits because we we didn't want to fire the guy that we had. There was a guy named Jesse Emmett who was you know funny, but he, he was not Chevy Chase. But uh, anyway, so then in around '75, uh, I called Chevy because Jesse left the show, and I said, "Well, we've got an opening now." He said, "Well, I'm going to New York. I'd love to, but I'm going to New York to do this new show." And so, and the rest is history, of course. But uh, and Lore never auditioned any of your people for Saturday Night Live. No, and we thought at the time when Lauren was there that, hey, this is he's going to audition us, and we'll be on this national show, or hired as writers or something. But but they didn't. But that's that's okay. He he. In fact, most of my information on this comes from a book that there's a book on Saturday Night Live. A cu- there's a couple of books which tell this story about uh, Lorne Michaels taking uh, Ebersol and his, and and Lorne's wife, or is it his wife or his girlfriend, Rosie Schuster, to Kentucky Fried Theater. And uh, Ebersol 
was trying to hit on Rosie <laughs> and didn't know that she was either, I don't know if they were married or it was a girlfriend. But that Did was, they introduce themselves the after the show? Then later, yeah, to his great embarrassment. No, 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 no. Oh, I see. No, no, I, you to us. <laughs> yes. Yeah, of course. We knew they were there, and they, they said hello. And we even did a, a little, um, it was a, we took a little uh, um, color film, sound Kodak film of it, because we would, we would uh, film things or video and then send it back to my mom and dad in Milwaukee as a kind of a, this is the news. And so, and Jerry narrated, said, this is Lauren Michaels here with Rosie Schuster and Dick Eversall. They're here from New York and blah, blah, blah. So you write airplane, you get it all paginated the right way and yeah. structured the right way. And you don't write Kentucky Fried Movie, although you have it technically written. It's just not in script form. Right, not in script form. And, and so you... What do you do with airplane? Well, do you f try to find an agent? What do you What well, do you do? Um, it, it, we were um, John Landis was going to direct. We wanted John to direct airplane, and, because we didn't. We weren't directors yet. He was a real director, and and Bob Weiss, our other friend, uh, would produce it. And so I think we we tried to. I don't think we even had an agent at the time. We just, I think we, Landis and Weiss. Took it to some studios, but it was turned down everywhere. And then, in that, that took about a year to write it and take it around and get turned down. So, Landis then said, "Why don't you guys make a movie of your theater?" And that's what became Kentucky Fried Theater. Now let's let's just talk about the writing a movie in this genre. And it, it, do you have a specific name? that you call this genre, that everybody calls it? No. I don't, think, I don't know. Spoof? I don't know. That's. I mean, they just call it spoof. Spoof. The but, spoof genre. Okay, so what I wanted to yeah. ask you was this. Yeah. So much of what is laughter on the screen is expression. Now, granted, yes, there's the guy in the movie Airplane, tall guy who's always out of frame and the banana falls down the table. Obviously... That when written on the page is funny, but was it always funny on the page because there was so much expression and so much? Well, it wasn't so much expression, but basically, you know, we set up familiar situations like you like you have in these hard hitting serious movies. Not we based Airplane on a 1957 black and white movie called Zero Hour. Did you did you know that? Because you can Google. Zero Hour and Airplane, and people have created these scene-for-scene scene, uh, juxtapositions of the of the two movies. And so we really, a lot of Airplane is just copies of these serious scenes. We we drew sketches from Airplane, scenes from Air, Airport and Airport 75, as well as you know some of some lesser known movies. There were some other black and white uh, airliner in trouble movies, like uh, there was one called Crash Landing, uh, and it was it was a genre. It was like a pre-disaster genre of the fifties, and then it came more full-blown disaster genre in the seventies. So everyone passes on airplane. You decide, hey, fuck it. We hadn't really gotten to the studios yet. We weren't of a level where we could even get an agent to read it. So 
Landis suggests, why don't you do a movie of your show? And so we wrote the, we wrote the script to Kentucky Fried Theater. This is an extraordinary story, everybody. So if you're listening and you want to know what can happen from if you have a dollar and a dream, listen up about how it happened, how we got the financing, how we got it up and running, and what happened to get the rest of the financing to get the movie done and out there. Well, it was, I mean, we had the script, we wrote the script and we just got nowhere with it. And we, we were meeting with, we ended up in the home of some real estate developer who said, I can, I can finance this. And so, but, but he never really, he, then he said, I want to get my, I don't want to do the whole thing myself because we got the budget. We did the budget for him. And the budget was, I don't know, 600000 So he says, I can't do the whole thing. I want to get my neighbors in it. So, but they want to know that you guys can actually produce this. So we want to know if your boy Landis here can direct and if Weiss can produce. Uh, they They need a sample. So let's do... 10 minutes of it and um and i'll pay for it and uh and i can show this to them and so we thought that was a that was a great idea so go go budget the write and budget the 10 minutes so we picked out four sketches from kentucky fried movie what were the four uh, it was the uh, assassination game, uh, zinc oxide, Cleopatra Schwartz, and the newscast. So, and we thought those were most representative of what the movie was. And so we we put those together, had it budgeted. So then the budget came out to I don't know, I, I think it was in the high twenties, twenty, let's say twenty eight thousand. So we take it back to him and we're all excited about this. We thought, what a great idea this is. Once they see this ten minutes, the neighbors will just they'll shower us with money. So he says, uh, okay, the budget's twenty eight thousand and these are the sketches. Uh no, I don't think I'm gonna do it. And he said, "No, you, you're not going to do it." And he said, "No, and I'm I'm really not interested in in investing the you know the six hundred thousand dollars either." So he's not going to do anything. It was just a no. So, I mean, it's one of those you know moments that you always remember. You know, like where you were during OJ's Bronco chase. And so we, I'm sure you remember that more than anybody else. Yeah, so, I you know I directed the most famous murderer of the 20th century. Anyways, back to Kentucky Fried Movie. Uh, we we leave his house and we're just we're just crushed. It's like, and we get into the car and it's like we're back to square one. And then, but on the car ride, we're we're thinking, you know, if this was worth it for a stranger to invest 28,000 um why wouldn't it be worth it for us to do it if it's if we thought it was so such a great idea to do the 10 minutes short why don't we do that we can do this we can put up the money and my mom and dad will help out and so that's what we did and we you know we produced this we directed these these four sketches our audience should know that somebody who's retiring this week was a famous person who auditioned for this movie. Oh, yeah. This was uh, for the feature. 
David Letterman. That's right. One of one of my big regrets that I mean no one cares about, but I it just is always kind of I you know I just wince when I think about it. But we picked another guy. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. And Letterman was so funny and so good in the newscast. We even used some of the lines that he made up in his audition. He was so brilliant and so funny. But, you know, later, you know, we kind of became friends and, you know, we joked about it and we appeared on his show once and, you know, and showed the and showed the audition. Well, actually, his audition for Airplane we showed. Anyways, but um, so okay, we, so we decided to do this this uh, short, the ten minute short ourselves. And by the way, by that time we were not four. There were not four of us. Chud now left. He left the the show in seventy two. Not e after not even a full year. So it was three partners. The whole uh, Kentucky Fried Theater thing was mainly done by the three of us, Jim and Jerry and I. So we so we and we borrowed my 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 mom and dad put in ten. Jerry and Jim and I put in each five, and we did the 10 minutes, and then Landis and Weiss took it around to all the studios, and we were turned down again. So it was still, you know, so we had this, we were out 5,000 bucks a piece, which was huge for us. And so we thought, ay, we had this, this $30,000 white elephant, and at least we wanted to see what the reaction was in front of a live audience. So... We took it to uh, Kim Jorgensen, who was the uh, the the head of uh, it was it was uh, well New Art Theater, the Fox Venice, these repertory booking. It was Landmark Theaters, mm -hmm. and Kim is it, coincidentally was from Milwaukee, and so we met him there in the afternoon, and he wanted to see it before showing it on Saturday night. And so uh, we showed it to him. He fell out of his chair laughing and loved it. He said, this is great. Where, where have you taken this? And we said, well, we took it to the studios. And he said, don't take it to the studios. They'll, they'll never understand this stuff. Uh, I could get you the financing. Give me two weeks. I can find the financing for you uh, from my friends. From you know, I'll get it for you. The 600000 we thought, more bullshit. We had just heard so much of this stuff. Now, before I go, the four sketches that you shot in the 10 minutes, if you did do the movie, would it be assumed that that 10 minutes has already been shot right, and you put that back in the movie, you yes. wouldn't have to reshoot that? Right. We shot it in 35 millimeter. Got it. Okay. So that it would, no money was wasted, believe me. Got it. Uh, and gas had gone up to like uh, 90 cents a gallon by that time. So, you know, money was worth something. And so, uh, you know, we and, and then it true to his word, Kim Jorgensen uh, got the financing for us two weeks later from his exhibitor friends in San Francisco who showed the 10 minutes in their theaters. I mean, the studios would never think to do that or anything. Yeah, I had heard yeah. that the the ten minutes, this person helped you get it in front of like as a pre short before certain movies yeah. in certain theaters in San Francisco right. only. Was it one or two theaters in San Francisco that did it? I don't I don't remember. It but people were two. going crazy for it. People and, laughed and, and, as they did that night at the New Art when we showed. Yeah, it. and so. and I believe if I'm not mistaken, that convinced the investor a hundred percent to put in the money. Right, and so we just had the money. Like that, six hundred and seventy thousand dollars. 
And so Landis directs, Weiss produces. Uh, Jerry and Jim and I went in as executive producers. It was now, why were you executive producers when you guys were the driving force behind the project? Why weren't you yeah, capital P producers? We were, I think. I mean, we were... Oh, produced by? You know, we never cared about the credits. It's like, you know, Bob Weiss was the line producer, so we just, we didn't care about producing. And in fact, I've never cared about being a producer. Okay, let's talk a business thing for a second. Okay. All right, because I think this is important for our audience. So you get the money from the investor. What does the investor want for $670,000? So the movie, let's just say... Movie gets made, first six hundred and seventy thousand comes in, the investor gets that. Then what was the deal? Do you remember that you made with this investor for every dollar after that? And how was it split between you, your brother Jim Abrams, and um, um, Landis and uh, Weiss. Weiss? Well, I don't remember what the split was exactly or what the deal was, but we. Uh, you know, the thing made its money back in the first. No, I know, but you weren't so expecting that. We weren't, so. Well, actually, we were. And we, we we always were very headstrong. Again, we always expected whatever we did to be a hit because we, we kept telling people, this is great. This script is going to be great. This is going to be wonderful. you got to do this. It's going to be a big hit. And we we did believe it. All right, so it's going. He finances you. You shoot the movie. And then you have a movie, but no one's bought it yet. How do you get it distributed? Well, th- this was it was financed by United Artists Theater Circuit. So when it opened, how yeah. many theaters did it open in? They opened it in I don't know six hundred theaters, whatever. And whatever. so it's an initial run. Yeah, it initial made run. it made an all profit. I mean, seven point one million dollars. And, and the head of United Artists Theater Circuit was this Egyptian guy named Salah Hassanin who was the scariest guy in the world, <laughs> very intimidating. And we were like, nah. <laughs> so, and, and, but that night, the, the next morning, on Saturday morning, he calls us, and he was like the most charming, wonderful guy in the world. And from then on, he just, he loved us. And, well, there's more to the story later, because we, you know, we, we took the airplane script to him. He said, uh, you know, I want uh, uh, this this airplane. The script is is funny, but I want to do do it within Kentucky Fried Movie too. So, airplane would be like a twenty minute. It would like be like fistful of yen. So, and we said no, and so you know we probably, you know, wandered for another year trying to get airplane made. Even after the success of the first movie, no one was buying airplane. No, I mean, this is what I've learned in the business, uh, among other things, is that they will only let you do what you've already proven that you can do. So it was it was quite a jump to get off the, you know, we were the successful uh, operators of a small theater on Pico. and But to go to the next level was, that was a big deal to get Kentucky to be the writers and producers of Kentucky Fried Movie. The next level, Airplane, was, well, we had to direct. What was the budget? Of uh, Airplane? Yeah. Three million. Got it. And so how do you get that off the ground? Well, that we took to every studio in town, and and some studios loved the idea. Uh, We took it to uh, Mark Rosenberg at Warner. Loved the idea, loved us. And then he read the script, 
And he said, no, I, I, he didn't like the script. So it's just, you know, it goes back to that one question you asked. You know, how do you write it on the page to, you know, to reflect, you know, what you're spoofing? Uh, you know, and it all is in the eye of the beholder. I mean, some people thought it was good. Some people didn't. So, uh, but fortunately, there was one guy who believed in this idea from the start and it was pure, that was pure luck on, for us. And it was uh, Michael Eisner at Paramount who heard about the script at a dinner party and uh, excused himself from the table in the middle of dinner and called Katzenberg and said, uh, there's this airplane script, uh, have these guys in my office on Monday. And so we got the call and, uh, and, we, were, and, and we were at Paramount on Monday, and I'll never forget that because we were impressed by the carpeting on the floor. What was <laughs> we impressive? Were in a real about... studio because it was like this rich studio carpet. <laughs> but we'll never forget the carpet at Paramount. So there wasn't <laughs> we a lot Paramount. of places with carpeting back then. Uh, we just we never noticed. I think Warner's had more of a uh, a tight weave, and this was and, and the Paramount carpeting was carpeting was more lush. You didn't even mention the carpet here. Anyway, yeah, this would be this would be more on the cheap side. Yeah. <laughs> this would be more of the Warner Brothers. Yeah, awesome. All right, so you get it going. He buys the movie, and now you're off, and you're doing Airplane. Yeah, we're doing air. They took us through rewrites, and we, you know, we did many more drafts at Paramount under the auspices of Katzenberg and some of their story people, and. You know, we were very frightened of the big bad studio ruining our precious script. And in fact, they improved it. So we were really grateful to Eisner and Katzenberg. I just can't say enough good about them. People always make fun of studio executives or, you know, say how, you know, horrible they are or what Neanderthals they are. But in this case, we were very lucky to have landed at Paramount, which was an all-star team. There was Barry Diller was there, Frank Mancuso, Dawn Steele, uh, uh, Bruckheimer and Simpson were there. So many, so many great people. Tell me one note that Eisner or Katzenberg gave you oh, that improved us, airplane. Yeah, they, they gave us notes. Well, here, one of the big things is you know we were we were such purists. Uh, that we wanted to shoot it uh, on a prop plane because of Zero Hour, the 1957 movie, and in black and white. And Eisner said, absolutely not. It will not, you cannot do this on a prop plane. So we went through every level at the studio, and everybody said, no, Eisner won't have it. And so finally we had a meeting with the man himself. And we said... We are absolutely set about this, Michael, and and we we explained to him why it would be funnier to do it in black and white on a prop plane. And Eisner listened very politely, and we finished our explanation. And he said, "Well, you know, you guys have really done a great job of explaining this. I really hadn't realized, you know." just how passionate you were about this, these particular points. And you may well be right about it. And you may make this movie, you may actually make this movie in black and white and on a prop plane. And it, it could be a big hit, 
but it won't be at this studio. And so there's just been silence. <laughs> and so Eisner kind of rescued us, and he said, but don't, don't give me your decision right away. Um, you guys think it over the weekend. This was on a Friday. And uh, let's meet again on Monday, and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll discuss it. And so uh, we met again Monday. Of course, we totally caved. <laughs> and he was right. He was absolutely right. So, you know, there, there's, I mean, it's just a good lesson on at least what the studio system was then. Now, the studios, I don't think they have people as talented as Eisner and Katzenberg running studios these days. Or it's, it's people who make horrible bosses nine, <laughs> you know, whatever stuff they're coming out with now. It's all sequels, remakes, big stars, whatever. Dave Chappelle once told me long ago, if you want to be great in anything, find your lane. This next guy definitely found his lane. And in my opinion, he took the lane and is the only guy I know who can succeed so far and beyond anybody else in this lane that I've ever seen. A man who rallies around the greatest female talents in comedy in the world and turns their careers upside down and creates movies that make hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. Movies like Bridesmaids, The Heat, and a movie that, if you ever see it, will just make you double over laughing. Spy, which was nominated for two Golden Globe Awards. I know you're going to really be inspired by this guy. He came to the interview dressed like he was at the Academy Awards. He was first class all the way. He showed why so many people want to work with him. Every word that came out of his mouth. Paul Feig. So in other words, these people feel comfortable coming up to you, even though your movies have made a billion dollars and say, you know, on this particular thing here, I'd like to make a request. I think it would be better if you did it this way. And, oh, yeah. and they're comfortable saying that to you. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, you, I make a, a, a habit of studying the careers of people I admire and studying particularly when they went off the rails. And you can point every single time to when they stop listening to people. That's when it dies. Because, especially in comedy, when you're the guy going, you don't tell me what's funny, I know what's funny, you are dead. You are dead. Start the timer, your career is going to be over. It might not be today, it might not be tomorrow, but it's coming up. And most comedians, when they go into sitcoms, have that attitude. Oh, totally, because there's been stories of people who are good at it. I mean, when I worked with Roseanne, she was famous for that, but because she was brilliant at it. She, when she had those notes, they were, she was spot on, even if they, she didn't find the exact reason why she knew something was off. Most and, people don't know this, but Tom Werner and Marcy Carsey, the producers of the show were not even allowed on the set. Oh God, really? I didn't even know that. <laughs> Matt Williams, who created the show was released after 13 episodes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, but it's, but she turned out to, she was still right. get it right. Yeah. She nailed it. And I, and ironically at that same time when I was an actor, I was on an, another sitcom 
that had a, uh, a famous actor who would become, <laughs> I can't name any names because I just, I'll be drummed out of, you know, I, I only, all I have is the trust of my actors, you know, so I have to create a safe zone. But I will say that this person, it was at that same time. And the lesson he took away was be hard on the script and throw stuff out, but without any real story sense. So we'd be reading, you know, the table reading, something was great. And we we're like, oh my God, that's so good. And he'd be like, no, tear, and like tear out the page. And it's like, well, it's not just like randomly throwing shit out. You have to know what you're doing, you know, but it was everyone's inspired by just Roseanne being tough on people. And, and you know, that's where you go. You know, you got to you have to have a storytelling sense. One of the things that I've heard about you is the fact that one of your processes after you've directed the movie is to screen it multiple, multiple times. Yeah, yeah. And I'd always tell anybody who shoots a short, I tell them, screen it in front of everyone you don't know. Mm hmm. Tell no one that you're the person and put a camera on top of the television facing out to the audience yeah. and then play them back simultaneously so you can see where the laughs are and where they yeah. aren't and start making your moves. 100%. But they say a lot of times that story survives and jokes don't survive as much. But in your process, what's fascinating, you want the jokes to survive and, and gain more. You want to increase the jokes per, per minute. Yeah. And I'm not saying reduce the story, but it seems like in your way, the story sometimes isn't as important as the holy shit moments, as I like to say <laughs> in the movie and the right. funny. Well, I like very, very simple plots because that allows me to hang character moments and comedy that is driven through the characters. Uh, and what I found is when plots get very complicated, you have to pick one or the other. Uh, but I always want to make sure that the emotional arc is there, that the jokes are in service of the characters, even if they're, you know, an extreme moment or something. You know, I mean, like Bridesmaids, you know, the, the whole dress shop scene, which became so infamous, was really driven. If you look at the emotional core of that, it's about it's a it's the craziest way to tell a story about a person who's a woman who's shortcoming is she she won't admit she's wrong, that she's in this battle with somebody that's clouding her judgment. She's trying to show off. So she takes them to a restaurant that is cheap, trying to sell it as it's good. And because of that, people get food poisoning. And so now the you know, the uh, the revenge or the the fallout from that is everybody gets food poisoning. But then it's like the funny thing about that scene is pretending everything's fine. You know, first, all the women are just, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I've got to get to the bathroom. They go. They have their fallout. But as that's going on, here's Kristen's character who's going like, I'm great. I'm fine. There's nothing wrong. And she's sweating. <laughs> she's falling apart. And her nemesis is just taking advantage of it. Like, I'm going to feed this to her. I'm going to make you admit that you fucked up. And that's the emotional core. What you, what you see on top of that is just all this craziness and people throwing up and all that. And that's the funny stuff. But the reason that scene works so well is it's the vulnerability of people and making these bad mistakes. And then, you know, Maya Rudolph running out in the street and just having to slowly die in the street as she shits her pants, you know. And But when we screen that to hear, especially when we were doing our test screenings, to hear especially women in the audience like, screaming with laughter you go we've hit something that people relate to this and it's this thing of just like that's happened to me in some way of this moment of like oh my god everything's horrible i've got to try to pretend everything's fine and that's the humanity of it that's the stuff i love and that's why i'd rather have less plot and more time to just 
take beat by beat of the human experience and go like, and let's just dig it deeper and deeper in and, until we hit the, hit the funny, relatable point. What's also great about you, which I've talked to a lot of people about you and who shall remain nameless. Uh-oh. And, uh, <laughs> it's all those actors I was talking about. <laughs> one of the things that you do is you create this incredibly safe environment where even if you have written the screenplay to the movie, you've created an environment where you allow the actors who have improvisational chops to literally change things on the fly and where a scene could be written on the page a certain way. And by the time it screens in the theater, it's a shell of what it was before. Mm -hmm. And you allow them to do that, and you have no animosity about that. And a lot of writers, as you know, yeah. people come in, they add a line, and they're like, could you just do it the way it is on the page? Yeah, yeah. But you don't seem to be like that. I mean, granted, you want it once your way. Sometimes I don't even care about that, honestly. It's, as long as we get the roadmap of what I need. Because all I, the biggest thing uh, the script and you know provides, and especially the scenes themselves, are a roadmap for... What is the, moving the story forward and what is getting the emotional arc across? And so you're going from point A to point B in a scene. All I care about is that we get from point A to point B that I need emotionally. How we get there can happen a million different ways. And that's my biggest problem with, with a lot of writer-directors. And I've talked to actors who've worked with them. You know, these people would hire brilliant comedic minds who were great at improv and great at just being themselves and finding that thing. And I'd say, how was it? And they go, it was terrible. They wouldn't let me deviate one word from the script. My whole thing, and it came from, you know, it's taken years to kind of figure this out. And a lot of it I learned from TV directing because, you know, there you're just in service of the, the exec producers. And they're like, you, you got to say it this way. And you got some actor who's, you know, is funnier if they could just twist it a little bit. But they're trying to torture out the wording that another person person's mouth uses and then so nobody wins then because you underwhelm, the, you know, the writer and you underwhelm the audience and you don't have the actor their full powers. So learned early on, like, no, let them make it their own uh, because then you get their personality. For me, it's like look, you work so hard to get to that set. First, you're developing for a long time and then you're dealing with the studio and you get your budget and your prep and blah, blah, everything. Everything is, you know, eats you up. But then when you get to the set, it's like, okay, we got an hour to shoot this quick. Okay, say the line, don't deviate, and, and we're out of here. You've completely blown the whole reason why you spent all that time trying to get to that set, which is now we have human beings. We have a amazing these amazing devices that capture what those human beings do in that moment. They capture every single micro detail of a popping vein, of a hair out of place, of a lift of an eyebrow. Why would you then say, all right, now let's just not let's just cut all the humanity out of this and just say the stuff I said and we're just going to fine tune the way I wrote it. That's criminal because then when you get these amazingly talented, look, if you have actors who just that's all they are is great at reciting lines, that's fine. I don't want that. I want lightning in a bottle. I want moments that happen when you and I are talking and you make a joke and I laugh or I make a joke and you laugh. That happens once. And if you go, you know, it's like being at a table and somebody, then they get a laugh and then they repeat the same joke. And you're like, okay, now, now you've blown it. Like, that's what I need to get. That's why I cross shoot as much as I can. So I'm getting both people on camera at the same time so that they can be surprised. That happens once. And as an audience, you're like, oh, you have a real moment that you see. Because how many times do you watch movies all the time, especially with romantic comedies, I found it a lot where you go like, I can see the page. I can see the writing on the page as they're talking and it's clever and it's this and that. But like, it doesn't mean anything to me because it's not people talking. Tell our audience, what's your process 
as a writer when you're writing a television show <laughs> in terms of cradle to grave when the idea strikes you and how your process works that mm -hmm. makes you successful and the difference between the process of a director only mm. who's just directing a project that's already been written. Yeah, I mean, I tend to, I do a lot of writing on, on even projects that I didn't write, and I work with the writers a lot, whoever it is, like Katie Dippel and I, you know, we always, that's what I love about Katie, because she comes from TV, and so she's willing to, you know, not be religious and precious about stuff, you know, because she's a brilliant writer. Um, I mean, the difference between, like, TV and movies, I mean, they're not really a big difference, the difference being that you're telling part of a story that is then going to continue beyond beyond that. So when you're writing a TV episode, you know, like doing Freaks and Geeks and stuff, it was fun to just take the characters from, you know, from point A to point B. It didn't have to be that far, just enough to go to propel them, you know, through through a some change or some realization or some experience they have that changes them a little bit. In the beginning, were you an A story, B story guy, or were you a guy that just didn't matter? I didn't matter. I, I knew you had to do A and B story, and, and especially because of Freaks and Geeks, it was easy because we had two different groups of people. But for me, it just was more, what's the most compelling story? And then I love when one story kind of leads you in another, and they kind of tie together. Um, but I don't know. I, I just, it's for me is more just what's the story or what do I want to tell and what can I get the most out of these characters by putting them through? But that to me is that's, that's why I love writing movies. Um, because the challenge of the movies is you have to tell a complete story in a limited amount of time that has to end in a way that is satisfying and doesn't need to go on. You don't need to have a sequel. You know, I mean, it's not, you know, unless you're doing Empire Strikes Back where you've got to establish thing, you know, okay, we can serial, serialize at the end. But even that, as much as I loved that movie, I remember when I saw it the first time as a kid, I was like, oh, really? What? I got, now how long I got to wait for the next chapter? But, you know, with movies, it's, it's, you know, who are the characters? I like to build from the characters first. I, I don't like to kind of go, what's the high concept and now let's shove stuff into it. It's more fun to go like, here's the characters I like or I want to do a character like this. And sometimes it's an actor I want to work with and go like, what would be the best way to then put that character, or that personality through their paces in a way that would lead to a satisfying arc and an entertaining storytelling, you know, process and then build up from there. And so it doesn't always happen that way. Sometimes you just have a concept and it's like, oh, what would be the greatest character personality to go into this situation? And what's the shortest amount of time it ever took you to write an episode of television and the shortest amount of time it ever took you to write a film? Um, actually, well, I, I, when I wrote the pilot for Freaks and Geeks, I wrote that pretty quickly for being something that was original. I wrote it in under two weeks. I was out on the road with this independent film I had done, and I just had this fire burning inside me <laughs> for it because my friend... Uh, 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 Matt Reeves had just created um, Felicity with J.J. Abrams. And so I watched the pilot for that and had always wanted to do like a show about my experience in high school because I felt I never saw it represented. It was always cool kids or whatever, and we were never in that group. And um, went, oh, the hour kind of dramedy format. That seems like the perfect way to do this. And so it just kind of opened up some of my head of like, this is where I can tell these stories. I've been writing a book about my high school experiences. So I had things like the dodgeball game and all that were already kind of written out. And so, yeah, just kind of plowed into that. And it was really cathartic. It just kind of poured out of me. And, you know, and it was able to kind of address things in my life 
you know, when I was a kid, I was an only child and always wished I had an older sister. And so I was putting together, the reason I was going to go was to be an only child who lives next to a family of all these kids, because that's how I grew up. It's like, wait, no, I can create the sister I always wanted. And then I can put her through the crises that I was going through as at that point, like a mid thirties guy who was having this crisis of faith and, and everything on my religion. You know, I'd been brought up religiously and I was getting away from it. And so I was able to pour all that into this 16-year-old girl who, you know, because I feel like a 16-year-old girl is about the same maturity level as a guy in his mid-30s. And so she became my funnel for all the angst I was going through. And yet, and then with the, I was able to do the comedy and the angst of, of the former me through, for, through the, you know, the young, the young boy character. And so that really poured out. So that was pretty quick. And then I think the fastest I ever wrote a script might have been Spy. Um, which I just got so hot on that idea because I've been dying to do a James Bond movie and was always to my agents like, see if you can get me one. It's like, who's ever going to hire a comedy director to direct James Bond? <laughs> so I, I suddenly went after we finished The Heat, I was sitting there one day and then Skyfall had come out and I was just like, God damn it, I want to do one. It's like, wait a minute, I work with all these funny women. Let me write a female James Bond movie, but make it my own and, and tell stories, you know, insecurities that I've had in my life through that and and pitched it to the studio. It didn't have a story. I said, like, just the big idea. And they're like, go write it. And I holed up in my apartment in New York for about a month all in and just kick this thing out. And uh, <laughs> yeah, and it was, that's great when it comes out that way. Cause I've had other projects where you just like, you're just trying to push them out. And sometimes I feel like that might be an indication that it's not the right idea. Although sometimes I've pushed through them and they've been, they've been fine. But I think there's, there's nothing like, a uh, you know just a runaway freight train of creativity that tells you you're kind of on the right track and the process of a director from when you have a script that you make the notes you go to the studio you say hey listen i'd love to do this yeah and you give them your take on everything what's the process there that's for you well for me i just i work the script really hard i do is go through very hard on the script and 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 kind of make sure that i can see my biggest thing is I want to make sure characters are acting like real people. Even if they're extreme and they're extreme comedy characters, they have to have a true inner life and they have to believe what they're doing. And they have to, as the writer, you have to make sure that the writer loved those characters and, and wasn't looking down on the characters. What I hate is, you know, and I see in movies all the time where you go like, clearly the filmmakers don't like this character. And they're going like, oh, look how stupid this character is. I don't like that because even the dumbest people you meet, even the meanest people you meet, even the biggest villains you meet, villains you meet, all think they are doing something right. You know, it's the George Bernard Shaw quote, which I've said this in interviews before, he had this one little maxim he wrote, which is all men mean well. And to me, that's that's the key to writing to me, which is no matter who that person is, they've got a reason why they're doing it. The most horrendous villain in the world's got a reason that's not just, I'm just going to create mayhem. And if he does, it's like, because I see the world as being this and I want to make my comment or I think this is going to be helpful for the world to spin it on its you know head and get rid of the people that I don't like. Whatever it is, that's what you need. And so that's what I really go through and make sure these characters are that way. And then figure out who I want to cast in those roles. And then what I do is early on, I mean, like a couple of months beforehand, I'll get the actors together either separately, sometimes in groups of two, sometimes the whole bunch of them. And just we'll read through scenes, but we'll read a scene and then it's like, well, play around with that. And like, let's play with this and play with that, you know, and so I can find what their real dynamic is. Because, again, it's you know, when you write a script, when a script is written, it exists as a 
like it's almost like a novel. It's, it's a piece of writing, and it can be great, but that doesn't mean that's going to work on the screen. It doesn't mean those relationships and those you know lines and everything are going to feel real. They can read great, but one and that's, it's so helpful. Once somebody these actors start talking, you go like, oh, it just it always there's something needs to be done. Some adjustment you need to find the character. I mean, the greatest that I had recently with that was with Spy because. I hired, I'd worked with Rose on, on Bridesmaids and she's so brilliantly talented. Rose Byrne. Yeah. Rose Byrne is so amazing. Um, but I kind of, so I kind of hired her sight unseen for this role of this villainess we had. And it was, I wrote it for like a, like a bratty kind of rich 19 year old girl from, you know, another country. And so it was written very kind of, it had that, that kind of attitude to it. But you know, here's Rose who's this very, you know, classy person and so I got her and Melissa together and they were reading and, you know, and Rose was, you know, very dutifully kind of reading it the way I wrote it. And it was just like, I was like, oh, it just doesn't look right coming out of you that way. It's just something's wrong. So I was like, well, let's try this. Right. And we just kind of went through a bunch of different things. And she's so brilliantly talented with accents and stuff. I was like, well, try it with your Australian accent. Try it this. Try that. And it was only like after several attempts that it was like, well, maybe try a British accent. And so she went into this very calm, classy accent and saying kind of the same lines and they just become a hundred times funnier because it was these really terrible things, but said in such a, you know, like almost respectful way. And I was like, that's it. That's the character. And so that was like, Oh my God, I got it. I know how to rewrite the script. Now I know what to do, you know, and send them away immediately. But then the other side of that was that same day I brought in Jason Statham to read through his part, which I had written very specifically, you know, for him, um, knowing it would be funny. I think it would be funny if it's, if he you know, was saying these things straight. And so he comes in and he's like, so how, you know, so this is a comedy. Like, should I try to be funny? So like, Jason, do not try to be funny. Read it the way you would do any of your movies dead straight. He reads literally every scene he wrote, read, read through. He did it once. I was like, that's so funny. Stop. And now halfway through the script, I said like, stop, you're done. Go home. We're finished. <laughs> and I just knew like he was just going to be gold because he just, he, he would just commit so hardcore. So it's, uh, but it, it's all that mixing of like, how do we find, how do we service each person? So when they come to the set, they can just slip right in and I don't have to, you know, suddenly we're not finding the character on the set. And I've had to do that sometimes too, when you just don't get rehearsal time with somebody. Um, but even at that, it's like, it's pretty easy if you're not going stick to this, do it this way. It's like, let's find it, you know, cause that's, oh, it's, and that's just brilliant when that happens. I mean, you know, in this Ghostbuster that I just did, you know, Chris Hemsworth, I didn't get to work with him at all, but I had lunch with him and just saw him and saw what was funny about him and loved his accent. I never, you know, you don't hear him doing his, his Australian accent. So I was like, okay. Chris, here's what I know. I want you to just come and play it Australian, do your normal accent. But it was written kind of like he was this more of like a slacker guy who was going to come in and sort of not care about the job. But he got to set and just he was so affable and he was playing it just kind of friendly that that became really you go, oh, that's great. And then when we did this interview scene where the, the Ghostbusters are interviewing him, I you know cross shot it, set it up and just he just started kind of improvising with them and it became very clear very quickly that him playing not stupid but just kind of dopey was really funny and he just he could he could improvise that because he just was going to set everything very straight but he had this really funny take on things where he's like oh no that's not what i meant and he would correct something 
And like the girls were looking at me like, did you write him that joke? Cause I, I didn't write, that's him. He's improvising. Like none of us thought he was going to come in and be like a master improviser. And, and it just, his character is just so funny on screen. My next guest is probably one of the greatest interviews that I've ever had a chance to do on this show. I get emotional when I think about it because it was the last interview he gave before he passed away. And I was honored that he allowed me to spend so much time with him. Such an amazing, extraordinary man who has been involved in some of the greatest films in the history of our business, including Runaway Bride, Beaches, and Pretty Woman. The list of this guy's credits is like War and Peace, but I'm not going to read them off to you because if I do, that will take time away from what he had to say. This guy, I miss him every day. I think about him every day. And this business was better off because he was in it. Gary Marshall. So your first television gig was with Joey Bishop on The Tonight Show where he hosted. He was the guest host. And you were the monologue writer? Yes. Were there many monologue writers? Six. Six of them. Yes. Got it. And because I'm very loyal... Two were nice to me. And later, when I got out to Hollywood and I had the odd couple, and I hired them. They came out and worked for me. And uh, Bob Howard and Walter Kempley were their names, and they did very well. You hear that, everybody? That's about the ratio in any profession. Why do you think it is that there's so many troubled people? What's your opinion of why people complicate winning? They hurt themselves, yes. They get in their own way. Uh, they become their own worst enemy. That was the cliche. I don't know why. I think insecurity. I had a fight with my Jerry Belson, one of the greatest partners I ever had, one of the funniest men I have ever met. He has passed on now. But I used to say, I'd like to go and talk to this uh, class of writers. You want to? He said, no, I don't like that. I said, why wouldn't you like to help a young writer? He said, they'll take my job. I said, they're not going to take your job. They're beginning. No, they might. So I, did, I said, fine, they'll take my job. So I think it has to do with security. And where does security come from? I, I think, I, I to get into this a whole other podcast, is... <laughs> It has to do with the women in your life, who you get married or you don't even have to be women. The mate in your life, who you're with, I think is very important in life. Talk about that a little bit. So where did you meet your first love? And talk about your marriage and what that woman was to you, the woman behind the man. Well, I mean, that as corny as it sounds, that was, I mean, I love dating. I'm Scorpio. I'm Italian. I have... Uh, Daughters and sisters, that's why I do female work a lot. The waitress downstairs just slipped yeah. her number under the yeah. door. I just want you to know that. Oh, good. i like, <laughs> like to see. No, I met this and that. But no, it, it, I was very lucky because my mother and father both always said, you're a sickly child. Marry a doctor. <laughs> so I looked at doctor here, but I met when I first came to Hollywood when you're from the Bronx, you don't drive well. 
So I, my partner, Fred Freedom, drove. I didn't do anything. So when you don't drive, you date around your neighborhood. So in the next apartment building, I met a girl who happened to be a nurse. And I remember calling my mother saying, how about nurse? Is that close enough? <laughs> and she said, well, you'll see. And uh, I married her. And uh, she's not uh, a favorite of show business, didn't love show business at all. And uh, we've been married 53 years. I only had one wife. And she was always there. And again, the story, as she tells it, is when we first went out on a date, she heard I wrote comedy for Joe. So she told me a joke. And it happened to be a joke I wrote for Jack Parr. <laughs> and that startled her. How could I know that? And that kind of bonded us, I think. She laughs very good at my stuff. And they say a woman knows within five minutes of meeting a man if she's going to be with him. Did she know? She kind of liked me. She didn't like. Uh, they kept. They kept telling her to marry a doctor, and she didn't like so many of the doctors. She was a big nurse. But she opened the intensive care unit at Cedars of. Uh, it was called Cedars of Lebanon then. That was that special unit when there's no chance they bring you in there. They, and she. She once saved Peter Sellers' life by getting on top of him. There was no heart machine. Then she pounded on his chest. She brought him back. He lived for another 17 years. I figure she was a friend of comedy. So we lasted a long time. I'm sure she saved your life by getting on top of you and pounding you too. She does pound well. She does all the, all the things she does well, but she basically, uh, 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 you know, been with me we've we've uh, been blessed that we can stay together so long i think that's amazing because in this world let's face it marriages 50 percent of them don't work yeah. and you made it work and you talked about that so eloquently about basically you have to have a good woman in your life so when you're single if you're in this business or any business i think a lot of time is spent especially if you're a scorpio <laughs> On the prowl, just trying to figure out what's going on. And then I always say this to young artists if they want to listen to me. When you meet a woman at a club or party or wherever it is, you're not just seeing her until 1130 and you're going to bed. You're up with that girl until 430 in the morning until the sun rises. And then they got to show up on the set at 8 o'clock in the morning yeah. at your set. That's not going to work. And so, like you said, it's just a choice. Yeah, but it's not quite as simple as that because sometimes people who are mean only mean for a second or because something's bugging them. So Danny was really nice to me, but that moment he was so nervous about the show that he was. But, I mean, I learned everything I learned from working with Lucille Ball. I talked to my sister Penny, but the first script, I wrote for Russell Ball. It, she wrote on it. I could sell it on eBay, make a fortune. She wrote, this is shit on the, in big letters. So it meant, please do better rewrite. It's their way of encouraging you to better. But instead of writing, Gary, I'd like to make a request. Can we work on this, this, and this? Right now it's a B plus, but I want us to make this an A plus. Can we work together to do so? Instead, she wrote on it, this is shit. 
and you're supposed to interpret that as being what I just said. Because all people who are bosses, artists, actors, producers have no time to do that speech you just said. They should record it and just play it and leave the room. <laughs> It'd be better, but they have no time, so they do. And I've done it myself as a showrunner. No, no, there's no good. There's, we can't do crap or something. I don't write this or shit on anything. But I, I, I think that you go through it and you... I, I think I learned who does close to what you were saying. Not perfect, but close was Carl Reiner. Because Carl Reiner, I, I don't know if you mentioned, I wrote for the Dick Van Dyke show at the same time I was writing for Lucy. I was doing fine freelancing in those days. Jerry Bells and I. And he would, uh, he would not say that. He'd say, Boys, I, I think we could do better than that. And I learned from him. I say when I direct, as a director, I'll say, you know, we'll do a scene and the actor, it could be a star, just an actor, regular actor, but I treat everybody the same. And there was like a pause or something. They took a pause, which I say, everything was good, but during that one pause, I wrote a pilot, and I, I don't have to have another pilot, I, I got enough pilots, so let, let's do it one more time. And suddenly the pause is gone, you know, so I, I, you know, I remember saying, Julia's favorite line is always, Julia Roberts? Julia Roberts, we're working, and every time, she asked me now, and we do, do the scene once, and I said, you know, it's very good if we were going straight to video, and we may go straight to video. <laughs> Who knows? But let's try. Maybe we let's try one that might not go straight to video. <laughs> so even now on Mother's Day, she said, "Was that a straight to video, Gary?" <laughs> he said, "No, we, we're okay." But uh, I mean, I think that way of working, Carl taught me that do with humor sometimes is better than saying this is shit. Do you really treat? everybody in every production the same or are you like a chameleon and you kind of change the way you are for different types because as you know there are extraordinary actors who are extraordinary people and then there are extraordinary actors who are really really hard troubled difficult people they're troubled yes they don't give you, but they are trouble. And so you can't possibly treat everyone the same when different people, like there's an actress who if you gave her a note to, she might cry because she thinks you think she did a bad job. And there's another actress you might give the same note to, and she'd be like, oh, thank you so much, Gary. That was wonderful. So how do you navigate between the really difficult actors who are extraordinary that you want to work with, but you know this is going to be tougher, and the ones that are the sweetest, nicest people in the world. Well, I still, knowledge is power as a director. The more you know about uh, the person and what they're going through and what's happening, are they going through a difficult divorce or something, you know that. I, I was taught I never told this story, but you're allowed to tell it, Miss Gayla. My first job, I was a producer, right? So, called How Sweet It Is was my first movie. Talk about some people that you gave a shot to that nobody was giving a shot to, like Jason. 
Like there's one person that did a movie with you who was a guest on the show, which was fantastic. And you gave him a shot to do a small role in Pretty Woman. And it was one of the greatest moments of his career, in my opinion, and it drove things forward for him. And that was Larry Miller. Yeah, Larry Miller. And he was a comic, and you have a thing in your heart for comics. I love comics, yes. So they started me in this Tell us book. a few people that you took a chance on that nobody was giving a shot to that you believed in when probably a lot of people didn't believe in. Well, it's not so much they didn't believe, but nobody paid much attention to uh, this kid uh, in uh, Princess Diaries. Uh, Anne Hathaway was, did once a TV show. She wasn't uh, anybody. She was 19. And in the second one, uh, I found this kid. I believe in if you do romantic comedies, you got to kiss. So I'm very careful with kissing. I test for kissing. I had Anne Hathaway. So the second one, I said, we, we need a big kiss here. So I got seven guys. I, I auditioned everybody. I got seven. I said, you're going to have to kiss seven. She said, okay, all right, let's see. And we did. She kissed seven guys. Not, I mean, it was a scene. And what I do is I take them and I play with the sound off and watch the kiss. And it became very obvious that uh, Chris Pine was the best kisser. And that's why he got in and became a big star out of that. So it's quite possible in those screen tests that some of those six people did a better job acting the scene, but he was the best kisser. It has to be a combination because the audience sometimes not quite sure what the acting is, but they know what the kissing is. They know if it's right or sincere. Larry Miller, by the way, was great. He was in Mother's Day. He always works with me. When he, they brought him in, they said, this guy's funny. I auditioned him. He wasn't funny. He came in to play a lawyer. And, uh, but sometimes if passion is a word that they use a lot, but it's true. And I said, not good. And the casting director said, no, he really is. You gotta. I said, I read him twice. She said, well, read him in something else. I said, Larry, listen, I haven't got time. Let's improvise this scene. Here, here. What? Improvise the lawyer. No, forget the lawyer. You're not good at that. Here's a part. He's, I said, there's a clerk. He said, there's no lines for the clerk. I said, I know. But let's improvise. What if there were? Let's make this up. And we improvised the scene together. And I said, you are funny. And he was the clerk and pretty woman, and he killed with that scene. He really did. And there, nothing was written. I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK. It's centered on the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll. His story, the footage, the interviews never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. Go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary. I guarantee you it will blow you away. What advice do you have for the young comedian that's trying to figure out some odd job mm -hmm. by some comedy club, trying to yeah. figure out what's happening? try to have a great film and television and acting career and stand-up career and what advice do you have for the young person who wants to be on 
also your side of the business mm-hmm. of producing and directing and writing to get to the kind of level where you have your own company and your own employees and yeah. you're here at offices on the lot. And what advice do you have for those people? Uh, I think that it's very different than when I started. When I started, there was no internet. There was very few ways to be exposed. So now... If you make something, you know, a kid being high coming back from the dentist can get seen by 50 million people. <laughs> so there's no excuse to not make things. And it doesn't cost any money to make things. You could make something with your phone that can explode on the world. So then the real question is, how do you learn enough that you can make great things? And I, I, I think you have to be open to getting better and educating yourself and knowing yourself and learning about the world and the business and being fearless about trying and allowing yourself to fail. Mike Binder gave me the best advice I got early in my career. He he told me that the first script that they made of his was the 10th script he wrote. And that that meant a lot to me because I thought, oh, so they don't make the first one. You know, they make the 10th one and the 10th one is better than the first one. So when I first started writing scripts, I thought, okay, as soon as I finish one, start the next one. I think, uh, I'm trying to think it was Chris Thompson said this on your show. There's a lot of people who they just, they write one script and they just like walk around with it for three years (laughs) and it doesn't sell and they don't write. But the second you get to the end on one script, you should be starting the next script and you should always be making things and, and, and not don't think you're great. You know, always know there's a long way to go because if you're open to that type of growing and evolving, uh, your work will get better. My work got better. I, I, you know, I, I, and I knew that like, Oh my, every time out, I have to take a risk and learn something and hopefully, uh, it's, I'm on an up curve of better and better work. And most people, you know, most people get scared and stop. That's why, you know, they say there's so many people trying to get in the business. There's only a few good people because most people don't have the courage to do what Amy Schumer did. To take a chance, to work hard, to put herself out there, to risk failure and humiliation, uh, to do something great. And if Amy failed, I guarantee you the next day she would have started the next script. She's lucky it all worked out but it would not have slowed her down. I mean, for the, for the executive side, I mean, I I always feel that, I mean, I felt this way when I was running a network, I feel like there should be change jobs day. (laughs) So the people who work in ad sales should work in development and the people who work in development should be, you know, an AD or PA on a set and the ADs and PAs should, you know, sell advertising, you know, like everyone should understand everyone else's job because if you only see it from one perspective, you're just, you're not going to be as as effective as really understanding every part of the animal. So I, I, I can't encourage people enough to really try to understand the whole of the business. And one of the great things about working at Viacom was that they built their reputation on being creative first. And we would have these big corporate retreats and they told this great story about South Park 
which started as a video greeting card. And they said, oh, let's make a pilot out of it. That was one of the things we talked to Doug Herzog about on the first podcast. The pilot tested terribly. And they looked at each other and said, oh, let's put it on. Like, if you have a golden gut, and I love testing. I love hearing what an audience likes and doesn't like. But at the end of the day, you have an exec. Anyone can, like, respond to people applauding or not applauding to graphs and charts. Do you have the golden gut that says, this is the right thing to do, and we're moving forward? That is the ultimate test of your job. Can you see past? Can you be more than reactive? Uh, for the young person out in the in the hinterlands, the young artist, wherever that might be, that lonely feeling that it's just you. There are thousands of people who feel as lonely as you do for the same reasons that you do, right? And maybe you don't feel so lonely now because there's social media, so you can get on Facebook or Twitter or something, and you can find like-minded people. But usually, when you talk to folks, they feel very, very isolated. And understand that the top of the mountain you're trying to climb is full of people who have the same experiences you did. Here's the difference between those who make it to the top of the mountain and those who don't. One is talent. Okay? Because just because you want something doesn't mean you're talented enough to do it. Right? Talent is a real thing. Now, you can develop it. Like, you can have the raw talent to be a good baseball player. It doesn't mean you're going to be a great baseball player. You actually have to work hard at it. So whatever you like, read The Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell. Realize that whatever it is you want to do, you got to put in at least 10,000 hours to even be a contender at being good at what you want to do. And then if you hone your talent, then hopefully that honing means you have the other thing you need, which is will. Right. Will is the thing that gets you up in the morning and, you know, you keep doing it. Will is the thing that says, I'm not going to the party. I'm going to sit alone in my crappy room and write. Will is the thing that says, I'm going to show up five minutes early because I really want this. And I want the person that I'm meeting with to know I want this. So even if I have to catch three buses and cross a highway divider, I'm going to take three buses and cross a highway divider to be there early. So those, I mean, and often, very often, will can be more important than talent. Now, I know we have all worked with enormously talented, self-destructive people. Yes, we have. Okay? And it's nothing more tragic than those people who cannot stop. They go, oh, I shot myself in the foot. Let me aim at the other one so I have a matching set of holes. <laughs> right? Meanwhile, the person maybe not as talented as that other person who shows up early gets the job. True. Right? Why? Because they showed up, they knew their lines. You know, that's speaking metaphorically, whatever it is. Like you're you're there and you're prepared. And you will get the opportunity that the more talented person who doesn't have their act together blows. So yes, you can let's say you fairly assess your talent and you go, I'm I. I'm not at the bottom, I'm not at the top. I'll keep working on my talent, but my talent is what it is. However, what you can control 
is the willpower and the discipline and the professionalism that can still put you on top. So those are the things that you control. Quit now, you'll never make it. That's seriously, quit now, you're never going to make it. And, and the reason why I say this is that, I mean, here, the other half of this advice is if you can ignore this advice, you're halfway there. So, I mean, and the reason I say it is I don't want to be responsible for encouraging anyone. It's just, it's because it's impossible. And it's like, we, we, we never had a, uh, an exit strategy or a escape plan or people would say, what were you guys going to do if you didn't make it? You know, after we loaded up the U-Haul truck, we committed to, we quit our jobs, we moved out to LA. And, and the truth is we never had a plan. We just, we were so headstrong and so confident that, that we would make it. And when I hear people say, well, I'll give it a couple of years and, you know, or for directing, acting, whatever's writing and see if I make it. I don't think those people are really going to make it because you just you have to, you know, you really have to commit to it. If you're around, you, you just have to hang around and love it. You have to love waiting on tables if that's what it takes for, for 40 years. Look, at what do you think um, Carol O'Connor did for, I don't know. 20 years, 30 years until he got all in the family. He just, he got bit parts. And then late in life, he just hit it big. He just, you know, there was the role that came in that was right for him. And often it's, it's not a, a measure of if you're good or bad, but if you're just right for it. I mean, John Hamm is brilliant as Don Draper, but I mean, he was maybe 10% lucky that a show like that showed up for him. Uh, other people make their own luck. I think uh, Sylvester Stallone w wrote Rocky. And, uh, you know, Clint Eastwood, very talented, uh, you know, has really made his own breaks. Uh, you have to, now it exists, the, the possibility for you to make your own video. That It's much easier than it was when I started out. Because the you know the stuff was really expensive. Now you can do stuff as you said on your cell phone, um, but but you have to. I think more than anything, it's persistence. And I I wouldn't I wouldn't advise anybody to to keep on <laughs> trying <laughs> just because it's so impossible. It's and you but you have to love doing it. And I you just have to be headstrong. I think. And just and do and not accept no for an answer. And but my advice still is quit. You'll never make it. My advice is you have no excuse not to do it now because you have with the dollar in your pocket more access to everything than any of us had in the course of mankind. And especially those of us who came up trying to be in showbiz pre-Internet, because with your phone, you can shoot high definition, it's going to look beautiful. And, it, you know, for what I had to spend $35,000 to shoot 16 millimeter to shoot this little movie that took place in a field that turned out to be I am uh, life sold separately, that we had all kinds of problems. It looks grainy. It looks terrible. You could, with your phone, shoot this thing. It looks professional. You've got your laptop. It's got editing equipment that comes bundled with it. You can cut it and you've got an internet connection. You can upload it and the world can see it. The caution I will tell you is make sure when you put it out, it's good. 
do your test screening, show it to people, get advice from people, work hard on the script, make sure you're telling a story you know and you relate to that you have a take on and make it as good as you can because once it's out there, it's out there. And people like us in, in, in the business, we scour the internet. I have a person who works in my office who, who does that and they just go on YouTube and they look at all this stuff and you find it. But if you see something that's terrible, you do mark like, oh, that person, it's hard to get a second viewing from anybody so make sure it's great but do it if you're if, if you're want to get in this business and you're not doing that then you shouldn't be in the business because you have to be a self-starter you have to be self-motivated i'm a kid from michigan who knew nobody when I, I knew nothing about showbiz you know i moved out to california didn't know anybody out here and just by going you know, I'm going to do it and going to film school. And not even, I didn't, not even, I had to go to film school. Just saying, I'm not going to take no for an answer. Became a stand up, did whatever I could to showcase. If you want to do it, you got to do it. Be driven, do it, do it, do it. And if you don't, don't do it. Because if you don't have that kind of drive, it's never going to happen. I think you got to do everything. You can't stay in one spot. I, I, one of my uh, pictures I got, Tremendous reviews was uh, nothing in common with uh, Tom Hanks and, and, and Jackie Gleason. And uh, yet, I couldn't say, I'm a great director. I mean, you gotta be versatile. You gotta try to do everything. I don't wanna shock anybody. It's a fickle business. So the more different jobs you can do, I ask all actors to try to write something some or try to produce directing is difficult but uh, they always say what i really want to do is direct that's not a good way to go but you really want to do is write or produce but i say do every job that comes up and see if you like it that's my advice to anybody starting it's don't quit but do every job gary marshall unbelievable i am so so proud myself and honored that you came here i had a nice chat and I don't miss the waitress, and I now can go to the restroom. Thank you very much. No, it's really a pleasure. We talked about some serious stuff, but it's part of life. Thank you so, so much. Thank you, Barry. All right, well, that wraps up another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I hope you liked this show. It meant a lot to me to revisit these directors. And if you did, tell all your friends... And if you didn't, tell all your friends. Okay, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section. And one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on James A. Gardner, April 8, 2017. Title reads, Barry's One of a Kind, Five Stars. Wow, thank you so much. His review reads, Unbelievable Insight with Hollywood's Elite, Week After Week, Barry rocks. Well, thank you so much, James A. Gardner. I wish I felt that way every moment of the day, but this is just a reminder that 
my self-esteem has been raised for this one minute. Thank you, and now I will go back to my same self-deprecating self. Congratulations. You are a winner. Special thanks to our new sponsor, AquaTrue, the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. Check it out. Go to industrystandardwater.com. Takes you directly to their website. Type in the code 100. Save yourself $100. I have one of these. It's amazing. Start turning your tap water into the best tasting water. Industrystandardwater.com. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money, drive that fancy car. All the people love you, cause you're going far. Life is for the dreamers, they have it's never quite over till it all feels the same you pick your own poison dig your own grave down in the valley a fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.